Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where our learned friends in the history community come to get really angry. The podcast where myth and misconception is eliminated in a dark alley. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my ever-loyal co-host and dark shadowy operative himself, Kyle Glover. Hello, everyone. Excellent title once again going on the CV. Thank you very much. Yes, you you earn it. Very dark, very shadowy, the assassin of history. Ill met by moonlight, etc. Yes. Well, ill met by me sometimes, (laughs) I think. Well... This week, we are back to the Second World War today, and just like when we had Dr. Caddick Adams on earlier, we have uncovered another quiet, unassuming historian who just can't narrow themselves down to one rage. This week, dear ragers, we welcome a lady who, you might recall from Series 1, was so angry she gave us two rages last time. Well, back for more is author, historian, and ambassador for the upcoming National Centre for Military Intelligence, Dr. Helen Fry. Helen Welcome back to History Rage. I'm so pleased to be back. I'm so pleased you're having me back in your studio. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, but before we start, though, can you please promise us that this week's Rage is going to be about history and not about punctuation? I, on my heart, promise. <laughs> okay. Well, last time we saw you was around the, the release of Spymaster. Uh, so how's that gone? Oh, it's gone incredibly well. In fact, it actually sold out before publication date on pre-orders. So there was a bit Whoa. of a mad rush <laughs> <laughs> and a kind of panic thinking, is it going to be available for the book launch? But, but for me, one of the most exciting products of the book coming out happened uh, a few months ago in Vienna. Mm. So I went to Vienna where the British embassy unveiled a plaque to the consular staff, which of course includes Thomas Kendrick, who's the key to the Spymaster book. And they've finally been recognised for saving 
thousands of Austrian Jews in 1938. It's about time coming, and it was a very, very special moment. So, uh, I mean, I saw some of the photographs that you were uh, you were putting up on uh, on social media. It certainly looked like uh, an occasion with with all the glitz and glamour that it warrants. Well, it was supposed to originally be just a few people, descendants <laughs> who had been saved, um, a few of those who'd actually whose parents, uncles or whatever, had worked with Kendrick. But by the time we turned up, of course, it had got much, much larger. And the ambassador, who she's absolutely fabulous, uh, Skoll, Ambassador Skoll, actually had invited her diplomatic friends, quite rightly, and a whole host of other guests. And it was fabulous, really fabulous and very, very meaningful, mm. particularly for the relatives, because for them, it was part of a journey. And what I've uncovered now is that Kendrick was part of this whole circle. He had this circle around him. I'm now calling it the Vienna Circle of friends, not just diplomats, but prominent authors like Phyllis Batome, who was married to Ernan Forbes Dennis. Ernan Forbes Dennis, of course, was MI6 for, mm. for most of his career. And they also helped Kendrick on this mission. So in a way... The research doesn't stop, even though you've written the book. And there are all of these events that happen around it. And now we have to try and get him recognised at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. I mean, the application yeah. went in a couple of years ago. So the work's always ongoing. It's so important to remember their legacies. And it must be so incredible to be to be part of that as well. Yeah, in many ways. I was pleased I didn't have a walk-on part on the day because I just wanted to be able to enjoy the event. And the VIPs did, quite rightly, their speeches. I did a talk at the Jewish Museum about Kendrick's life in Vienna. That was Jewish Museum in Vienna. And that was very, very special because that was a more relaxed moment for me. Mm. And I could really enjoy, with the relatives, this very special moment. And they'd travelled a very long way. You know, not all of them have come in from London, but they've come from all over the country and from other places as well. But this for them was a very, as I said, a very important part of their own personal journey. And the other project that you were talking about, albeit briefly last time, was the development of the new Military Intelligence Museum, the National Centre for mm. Military Intelligence. So how's that coming along? I'm so excited by this vision. It's still in development stage. Yeah. So hopefully there'll be announcements before too long from the trustees who are involved and the, the board of trustees. But this whole vision to create a national intelligence centre, if you like, well, museum is not the buzzword at the minute. Yeah. So they're kind of calling it the National Centre for Military Intelligence. And it will encompass intelligence, naval, air intelligence, uh, army intelligence, anything relating to intelligence from the year dot to what can be released today and what can be yeah. talked about today. So for me, it's very exciting. It's going to be, from what I understand, interactive, exciting for every generation that goes to visit it. Uh, we are yes. looking forward to it. It's very much a uh, very much a centre I want to see, and it's very much something that feeds into what you've come on today to boil your blood about. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it's a slight change to our normal rage question now, Helen. But what's annoying the hell out of you this week? Well, this week only this week. Only this week. <laughs> only this week. Well, I I want to rage 
about how Bletchley Park was not the only site that won the intelligence war in the Second World War. I it, It's one of my favourite museums, Bletchley mm. Park. I love it. I love the new exhibitions they've done there. But of course, there's so much more research that that they can do on the impact of their intelligence on operations. There's still so much for them. We just cannot say that Bletchley Park on its own won the intelligence war. And I think they're moving yeah. away from that because mm. there are other sites which are now proving to be equally important. And we're getting a sense, certainly from the walls have ears that I've written about in Spymaster, we've got the whole eavesdropping programme We've got RAF Medmanum at Danesfield House. And for those who aren't aware, Danesfield mm-hmm. House was where they did the aerial intelligence and they analysed photographs from the reconnaissance missions. Uh, of course, you guys will, will know that, but, but it's not really talked about mm. that much in intelligence history. And of course, it's the, those aren't the only ones. Yeah, so we know from from our experience because we've done some work with Hugh and De Manor as mm. well that's uh, done mm. a lot of work to recreate its... like. Uh, it's photo intelligence suites within that. Yeah, codename Hillside. Yeah, so many places. Yeah, I haven't actually been yet. I keep meaning to go to Hewenden. I was promised a personal private tour and then the lockdown happened yes. and I haven't made it back. So that very special day got cancelled. I was really looking forward to that. But I think what what's is encouraging, mm. even though I'm raging about this, is that historians are gaining a, a kind of understanding and beginning to just dip their toes into these other areas. But one area they are not dipping their toe into are the whole transcripts of the bugged conversations of the wartime, which has so much intelligence that we cannot be writing Second World War history unless we at least consult these files first yes. to rule out whether there's anything of any relevance. Do you think yeah. that's fair comment, guys? Yeah. I think that's fair comment, yes. Well, it's your rage, and if you think <laughs> it's fair, then it's fair by us. Well, for, for my own part, I've already, based on uh, stuff that was in The Walls I've Here Ears, I've already included some of that into my own work, into my own talks about General Kriper, what he was recorded saying, how useful the people who were listening to him thought he was. That's already factored into my own small part of Second World War research. So hopefully bigger names can start doing it as well. Oh, Carl, that's so encouraging because Kriper, of course, struck up a very yes. close relationship, friendship with Kendrick. I mean, he thought Kendrick was a decent military gentleman, little realising that Kendrick was one of our most senior spy masters yep. and a founding member of what we call MI6 yep. today. <laughs> And Kriper, interestingly, made a very tiny, well, it wasn't really a go-kart, but he made like a little lorry out of wood for Kendrick's grandson. And the grandson always remembered that. Grandson's passed away now. But it's little things like that, that human relationship. And Kendrick was quite happy. You know, his family were exposed to these events. And it's all part of his charm but to get the intelligence and what we have, and I have been challenged in the past, and this is part of my rage. Um, I might be tipping into two rages here and I'm going to get told <laughs> no, no, off. Again. No, please, please do. Please do. <laughs> Carry on raging. Um, I Previously, I've been really, in, over the last few years, heavily challenged about the impact of this intelligence. Mm. But I think 
what is good is that people are reading it, they are taking it seriously. And I don't, I didn't start out thinking, of course, it's my work, my research, but I did not start out thinking that any of this had any impact on the war. And you may have heard me say before that secret listener Fritz Lustig, who said to me, did we do anything that made any difference to the outcome of the war? He is a secret listener, had no idea. And I promised him I would look at the files. But in looking at the files, I just thought I would come back and say to him, yes, when the prisoners from the Shan horse came through your site, they talked about this and this, but, but what I uncovered was just astonishing and, and was I was not expecting. And I think that's going to be very exciting for historians. And I'm so pleased, Carl, that you're working on this stuff. But we need to do that because mm. this was one of the greatest, not the greatest, but one of, alongside Bletchley Park. Mm-hmm. They, they needed each other alongside RAF Medmanum, alongside the double agents, everything needed to go through. But what Kendrick achieved, I think, is still underestimated because we haven't had enough brains to analyse some of the other stuff. Impact on the Battle of the Atlantic, for example, uh, is just one example. It's too specialised for, for myself. I think it really needs a naval historian to go through it. The other thing I would say with regards to Bletchley Park is that there's tons of, uh, enigma intelligence wouldn't be the right word, the stuff of relevance coming Mm -hmm. through Kendrick's three secret sites that goes straight up to Bletchley Park. And Bletchley Park send some of their people down to interrogate some of the prisoners because they need the expert knowledge. So somebody needs to write a book. They need to pick out all the intelligence relevant to Bletchley Park from the bug conversations. And I think there are going to be quite a lot of surprises. But this site, and this is my rage, produced war-winning intelligence alongside Bletchley Park and the others. Okay, so to widen that out into the wider intelligence war then, Kyle? Can we get some detail as to what other intelligence agencies are play during the Second World War, um, both at home and overseas? I'm thinking MI5, MI6, but for start... What are they and what other organisations are there? So if we start with MI5, Mm. MI5 is a security service that largely is dealing with security in the UK, although sometimes their work does pick them into things overseas. And then MI6, in charge largely for security, sending counter-espionage, counter-intelligence abroad, so tracking agents, spies, that kind of thing. In the Second World War, German spies and agents. MI5, during the wartime, again, is very much overlooked because we tend to think of its personnel being in the MI5 headquarters, beavering away with paperwork. But in fact, they are running, for example, the double agents. They are sending double agents like Garbo back behind enemy lines, they're feeding deception to the Germans. Mm. You have MI6 running escape lines across Europe as part of MI9, MI6, the boundaries are quite blurred, but MI6 are running secret networks behind enemy lines to gain intelligence. You've got the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, Mm -hmm. sending agents behind enemy lines. You've got naval intelligence. You mustn't forget the naval intelligence lot. They are of course, mounting all kinds of operations, again, no. largely overlooked. 
Operation Mincemeat being one of the most famous today, partly because of Colin Firth in naval <laughs> uniform. <laughs> but float up the dead body. You've got air intelligence. All of this is exciting and it's feeding into the intelligence picture. We've got Bletchley Park, of course. Mm. It's vast. We've got Hewenden. It It's vast. And all of this, not everybody in every department knows about the other, but it's all feeding into the intelligence picture to provide corroborative evidence, if you like, of, of pieces of other mm. intelligence. Yeah, but not... They're not just looking at one source. They're looking at multiple and seeing what lines up. Exactly. So if you think about the V weapons, for example, yes. the V1, V2, we were getting intelligence behind enemy lines. One of the things that the agents were asked to do and some of the helpers, couriers, etc., behind enemy lines, their eyewitnesses, they're to look out for particular installations. So we're gaining intelligence from behind enemy lines, but we need to corroborate it. We can't just be picking up certain pieces of intelligence and thinking, right, we must go two kilometres south of Calais and bomb that, because you risk your bombers. You have to absolutely know mm. the targets that you're mm. going to knock at, because you've got limited resources, you've got limited pilots, that's just one example. Yeah, it's not. It's not just a Frenchman saw a weird thing in a field. It's a Frenchman saw a weird thing in a field, and there's radio traffic, and there's aerial photos, and there's all those other things coming from it. And interestingly, they are also <coughs> sending draw, drawings back, uh, pictures, photographs, and then, of course, you've got intelligence from German prisoners of war who yes. might give up something in interrogation. And there are a number of sites which are linked to Kendrick's sites, but not necessarily run by him, the Prisoners of War Interrogation Centre uh, section. And that has the London Cage mm -hmm. in central London. And they're gaining intelligence from Prisoners of War. But at Kendrick's sites, you've got those microphones picking up the casual conversations. So the prisoners are talking about things which joins up in uh, on occasion the intelligence. A prisoner might talk about a particular piece of equipment and they'll think, Ah, so the intelligence officers think, ah, we received a drawing from someone behind enemy lines that was sent to MI6 headquarters or whatever. So the intelligence chiefs are analysing and, was well, putting it very crudely, are analysing the sources of intelligence. Yeah. Mm. And if I might also say, sometimes things that were discovered, particularly on German technology, which was considered to be so advanced, it wasn't possible. Ah, but the prisoners are talking about this and they're being quite detailed yes. in their description. Mm. So the Admiralty in particular didn't often believe this stuff. So the boffins would be you know, put in some hangar somewhere, go and build this thing. And then they build this gadget, so to speak. And then, of course, the Admiralty say, oh, okay, the Germans have <laughs> built one of these and it is working. So quite often you couldn't know some of the intelligence coming through, particularly on technology, was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how can this be? How much did the various intelligence agencies kind of work with each other? They do work with each other. In fact, just to give the example of the transcripts of conversations that come out of Kendrick's sites, at the very end of each conversation, there is a list of who has had copies and how many mm. copies. 
So you might have, for example, Naval Intelligence Division might have six copies. MI5 may or may not have a copy. If they don't need that information, uh, SOE sometimes, Bletchley Park, of course, but Naval Intelligence, Air Intelligence are the main ones that are receiving this information because most of it, quite a lot of it is technological. Yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss okay so if we're looking at a few of these wider intelligences and i'm thinking of uh, i'm thinking of kind of like the spies on the ground at this stage where you mi5s you mi6 and things like that so how does the intelligence war actually work on a operational level what networks are in place what support is there for agents and just just how do you go about getting this stuff? Well, it can be quite tricky because the files don't necessarily give us the route mm. A, B, C. So as a historian, you quite often have to look at different files from different angles and try and join the dots. Yeah. So just to give you one example, MI9, which was traditionally for helping our guys out from behind enemy lines, the escape and evasion lot, were also involved in smuggling intelligence mm. out. And this could come out on prisoners of war who'd escaped. They would smuggle intelligence over the Pyrenees. And when they come back to London, they come out through Gibraltar. Uh, they're either debriefed or they hand over intelligence. Some of the helpers on the escape lines, when they had to be exfiltrated from enemy territory for their own safety, some of them brought intelligence out. And then that just goes off to the war office, mm -hmm. if you like. And we don't always know the trace. So if we look at it from another angle as well, if you look at it from the bug conversations here, we have at the end who receives copies. But you don't necessarily know who in naval intelligence is receiving these mm -hmm. copies. How is it distributed in naval intelligence? Who is seeing it in bomber command if it relates to bombing campaigns, night fighter tactics? We just don't have that level of detail and methodology, if that's helpful. Mm. So I think what we can do is we can look at intelligence gained and how does that impact on particular aspects of the war? Yeah. And that's an, an analytical thing. But I think it's very, very difficult to go right from the beginning of an agent being dropped all the way through to the intelligence landing on someone's desk. It's very loose. Yeah. Mm. Okay, if I can ask, can ask one that uh, 
that that you've done some kind of digging into um, quite a lot. But if we, if we take MI9, for example, mm. how would one even go about setting up an escape line? Well, the different escape lines occurred mm-hmm. for different reasons. And in the case of the Comet line, which actually ran from Brussels across France down to the Pyrenees, down to the far side through Bayern and over into Bilbao, that was actually founded by a group of Belgian mm-hmm. women. And they actually, Dede de Jong, otherwise known as André de Jong, turns up at the British Embassy in Madrid one day and says, I've got three escapers downstairs and they don't believe her they think she's a plant by the germans okay she's 25 she's 25 years old how could she possibly have made it on her own with no guides no smugglers was it on her own okay she's escorting these three guys but she's made it on her own and they, they cannot believe it so sometimes the escape lines were set up already by people working behind enemy lines, incredibly brave. So it's a lot down to the initiative, and then MI9 finds ways to reach out and to help yeah. them. So these things happen organically, and then the first that we find out about them is some some Belgian girl turns up in an embassy in yes. Lisbon and goes, hello! <laughs> you know? I want yeah, to yeah. set up an escape line, and they're thinking, this is ridiculous. And she's, she's in there. She's there for two or three weeks. Not actually in the embassy, but she goes away and comes back again. And it's two to three weeks before London says, actually, we've checked her out. It's legit. Let's start, let, Yes, we'll endorse her escape line. And it's Claude Dancy, who's a deputy head of MI6, who oversees the MI6 and MI9 escape lines, who says, right, sits down, has a meeting with a couple of others and says, OK, this, we're going to formalise this. We need to get mm. guys out. Uh, and oh, they've got agents out through the escape lines as well. So it's fascinating in many ways and it was top secret mi9 was top secret and even those that worked for the escape lines didn't know that it was mi9 they were working for again i think psychologically we don't necessarily think of that yeah. naturally but but they didn't even know the name of the organization that they were working for it was just yeah. The line, I just line. just for people out there as well to put this into perspective. Those of you that don't know the comet line, as we said, this is set up by this Belgian girl appearing in an embassy and going, "Hello, I've got three guys." To run the to run the comet line is nearly a two thousand kilometer journey. If you want to run the whole thing, and that's assuming if you've got out of a camp that maybe in Germany that. You've actually got to get to Brussels first before this the, this whole network starts. But that is to to go from Brussels to Lisbon, two thousand yes. kilometers that they covered, which covers two occupied countries and one country you probably still don't want to get found in. At least, that is astonishing. I think for me that's that was astonishing during my research because. You might think, well, look, they're coming all the way across Nazi occupied through Paris. Mm. They took trains through Paris right under the noses of the Nazis. Well, but why didn't they go out through Danzig, port in the north? Well, yes, occasionally they did, but not with the escape lines because the Germans knew, aha, they're going to be using the short lines, the quickest way out. What's the shortest way out from the German border? So they would be watching those 
So it's very clever understanding the Germans didn't think, I mean, obviously some of the skate lines were compromised from betrayal. But if it wasn't for the betrayals, the Germans just couldn't believe, like we can't believe today, that the escape lines would be that that lengthy. So I'm going to move from kind of foreign intelligence now back to domestic intelligence. So we often hear how Britain turned pretty much every German agent that was in the UK. Now, we hear that a lot. Is there any truth to it? And what can you tell us about counterintelligence throughout the war we did capture every single german agent or spy that landed in britain that is well documented unless this information that's been Mm -hmm. withheld that's not yet been declassified but the current understanding absolutely is that yes we captured them all we successfully turned all of them no we did not successfully turn all of them. 19 German spies were actually ex- actually executed during the wartime because they refused to work for us. So the, it's very stark. You know, you work for us. Otherwise, otherwise we shoot you in the tower. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> like they did with uh, Jacob yeah. Jacobs. Yeah. Josef Jacobs. Um, I'd also heard a thing of, um, and I've seen this crop up a few places, but I've not actually looked into it any uh, in any depth but could it could be argued that one of our biggest intelligence assets was actually the head of the abwehr uh canaris yeah we could we could admiral canaris historians still have an open mind as to whether admiral canaris head of the abwehr was really working for us i've dipped my toe into a bit around him and it's quite clear that on occasion he was allowing intelligence there were channels in which intelligence was making it to the allies i can't talk any more mm-hmm. about that at the moment <laughs> okay okay how delightfully tantalizingly vague <laughs> but yes he's an interesting case yeah. shall we put it like that yes right we'll, we'll leave it at that then so, shall we uh, how... <laughs> it might might involve yeah. some women, by the way. <laughs> I, don't, oh, wow. I, I love how even bits of your own book are classified at this stage. <laughs> I blame the publisher. It's publisher's yeah. contract. Yeah. We're not allowed to talk about it in advance. Um, well, if we're if we're capturing every German agent that we find, how are we going about finding them? Because aside from, aside from, as I understand it, there were three that Canaris sent over that we just got straight away because they were cycling down the wrong side of the road and speaking, speaking Portuguese. But, you know, most German spies are not going to announce that they're German spies. How do we go about discovering them and getting them? Well, we know they're coming partly because of the double cross, the double agents, the double cross system run by mm-hmm. the 20 committee. They're like headed by the likes of Masterman, John Masterman, former professor at Oxford. They are actually not only turning agents that land and sending them back, but they're also using them to, to feed information when new agents are expected. There's uh, communications being picked up by Bletchley Park. So we've pretty much got the whole of the German intelligence service covered, I think. And for me as a historian, I'm not an expert on the Abwehr, but I can't understand why the German intelligence service wasn't better than it was. 
Although Nigel West has brought out a brilliant book recently on Hitler's vipers, his nest of vipers, on the Abwehr. And it's got a lot of new research in there. It still doesn't quite answer why they were so bad, but it's it's a brilliant mm. book, by the way, and well worth a read. I was trying to think, I think it was, I think it was in one of, I think it was possibly in Ben McIntyre's book on, uh, on, on the double cross system, uh, where he referred to, he referred to MI6 as having this just reputation as being the world's greatest spy agency, which it, it carried, but it couldn't really back up. But the, the Germans spent an awful long time looking for a whole load of MI6 agents that actually just hadn't been deployed at all. But they were convinced because of MI5's reputation that they were just dealing with the best of the best. Well, yeah, and Garbo, of course, he actually, he's one of them that has this Mm. fake network. And the Germans believe it. They're completely fake. He's running fake agents which for me I think is so clever. Yes, we've got the real agents that have been turned and are going back, but we've also got one of those double agents who's decided to create this whole fake network and he's feeding intelligence from these fake agents that don't even exist. (laughs) (laughs) And the Germans buy it lock, stock and barrel because some of the intelligence they're feeding him or Garbo's feeding him is so believable and it might be slightly delayed, but the Germans realise it's true and so they can't afford mm. to ignore him. Yeah, I think it's a result of Garbo, wasn't there one panzer division that didn't actually move until like we'd gone through France and we're already dealing with it, taking the Netherlands and they finally responded to D-Day in about mid-September. Yeah, and what we find out from going back to the bugged conversations, it's General Ramke that we capture in September 1944, who gives up, he's talking to his fellow generals about D-Day, and he says, because of course he's not captured around D-Day, he's captured in September, but he says, when we saw the might of what was heading for us, he said, over the horizon, we knew it was over. But the funny thing was, or good for us, but they were too scared to send it up to Hitler, because Hitler was not supposed to be disturbed before a certain time. And so even we've got the D-Day landings literally on the horizon, it's about to happen, and his generals are too scared to send the intelligence to Hitler because they don't disturb him. And that's that's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah. But General Ramke just says, when I saw the force that was heading towards us, I knew it was all over. There's nothing we could do. It's all over. He still makes it into his bunker until September, but he's captured, as you probably remember, with 24 crates of cognac, his mistress and his dog. <laughs> oh, ideal, really. It's, it's what he would have wanted. <laughs> That's right. Ah, oh, no, but you see, the files then say, we brought back the cognac with him. They just confiscated off him, obviously. Oh, yes. We used the cognac for all sorts of interesting oh, things. Yes. But we left the mistress and the dog behind. Oh, damn them. Damn them. He's going to at least Wonder. brought out the dog. <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, this is the yeah. human side of it, isn't it? Yeah. So that flows neatly to what you were talking about uh, in your last book and your last rage um, about Thomas Kendrick and the Trent Park eavesdropping operations. Um, mm. That's the subject of your, the, the book, The Walls Have Ears, if I'm correct. Um, yes. So how, how did that operation get set up? 
And when they were setting up, were there any kind of opposition to them doing this sort of underhanded intelligence gathering scheme? So the whole eavesdropping, the bugging of prisoner of war conversation for intelligence mm. was set up by Thomas Joseph Kendrick, expert on human, on human intelligence. Mm. And what we realise is there are layers of secrecy. So it's only those who need to know within various layers of various intelligence agencies that even know about it in the early part of the war. It starts as a very, very small operation. And it's, there's no blueprint mm. for this. So, again, that's what I find incredible. What if Kendrick hadn't been there? What if the Gestapo had murdered him in Vienna when they captured him? What if they hadn't expelled him? The Germans had not expelled him for espionage. Because I'm not sure that any other commander would have had the skills to do what he did. He understood the psyche of the German prisoners and how best to gain intelligence. We don't have in the files any evidence that there's any opposition to this operation. And I think that's because also not many people knew about it. Mm. So really only at the highest level of the directors, various directors of military intelligence, uh, naval intelligence, etc. This was so, mm. so classified. So we, we see from other intelligence agencies that like MI6, MI9, SOE are kind of always getting on each other's nerves and getting each other's faces and having this yes. massive political catfight in the background. You know, but Kendrick doesn't face any of that, does he? No, he doesn't. And he's really, because he starts with a very small team, he escalates it quite quickly. But they're sort of working just in the in the margins. Nobody really knows about them. Because by the time they move the Tower of London, nobody knows it's going on. And he move out of the Tower of London to Trent Park in North London. It's away from War Office, you know, Hotel Metropole, that kind of uh, all that kind of area. And so, much like MI9's headquarters at Wilton Park in Buckinghamshire, they're out of the prying eye where somebody can say, "Oh, what are they doing in an office there? It's all very secret." He just is allowed to get on with it. And the results that he starts to bring through, uh, there is a questionnaire sent to the heads of the Admiralty, the Naval Intelligence, Air Intelligence, etc., Bomber Command, uh, MI14, all those German departments, all those for German espionage, and MI5, MI6. Do you like them in the transcripts in their original language alongside the translations? How helpful are they? And all of them in their own version of their own words come back and say this stuff is indispensable to us we can't do without it so he's allowed to get on with it set it up successfully and then there is this poll if you like to the heads of intelligence saying can you please analyze how successful is this and it's just astonishing how early how successful this is and then there are no questions that this is going to continue or not this mm. is non-negotiable for the outcome of the war. Uh, and so going forward for the rest of the war then, is he got almost like limitless resources that he just requisitions to, to carry this on? Yes, he has, as we know from a top secret memo, he's given an unlimited budget to set up two sister sites, Wilton Park at Beaconsfield and Latimer House in Buckinghamshire. Uh, well, Wilson Park's also in Buckinghamshire, but they're close, fairly close to each other. And those, you know, would be necessary 
for the amount of prisoners we're going to capture after the invasion of Sicily and Italy, particularly after D-Day. And he knows, he believes we're going to capture Hitler's top commanders. And that's another thing you see, no one's ever asked, none of our historians, what happened to Hitler's generals after they were captured. You've got to have a special site for them, which was Trent Park. But so Kendrick had the foresight, he understood and he believed with intelligence chiefs that we could win this war. So he doesn't get into the fight. He, you know, he's not involved in that friction between MI9, MI6 and SOE. He's kind of outside of that. I'm not saying they're not using the intelligence that's coming through his sites, but he's outside of that way. He's sort of on his own at these sites that are so top secret that only those that need to know know that they exist. And as I recall from reading in The Walls of Ears that he is... All the listeners are, well, Germans, really, aren't they? Yes, they're native Germans. Yeah. How did he go about recruiting them? So he puts a call out to the Pioneer Corps, where thousands of Jewish refugees, over 6,000 of them actually, were digging for victory in the Pioneer Corps. Mm -hmm. And he says, we need native German speakers. We've got some volunteers uh, some of them actually were recruited by English guys who were working in intelligence already and say, wow, wouldn't you like to do something a bit more interesting than playing the cello in the orchestra, the army orchestra? Yes, that's not my idea of fighting Hitler. <laughs> well, why don't you just write to this address? Oh, they get a mysterious interview. <laughs> they have a, a real kind of selection process. And then a couple of months later, they get that mysterious train ticket not to Bletchley Park, but to Chalfont and Latimer, for example, on the Metropolitan Line. And they're picked up by an army vehicle. They're taken to this secret site. They realise there's something not quite right about it. It's different than anywhere else. And it's the following day that Kendrick tells them the nature of their work. And even those that were working on the site didn't necessarily know what those in that hut were doing or in that annex they didn't talk about it there were layers of secrecy even within those sites so i think that gives us a bit of a perspective on the necessity for secrecy the intelligence that we saw not just there but uh, across the whole of world war ii and the uh, and the techniques that we learned how do they influence both the immediate post-war era because we know how they influence the war Mm. How do they have influenced post-war and Cold War going forward? Yeah, for me, this was something of a deeper dive into the intelligence when I was writing Spymaster. Because clearly I can't just do a precy of the walls have ears. But <laughs> I was interested. In the back of my mind when I'm writing the walls have ears, I'm thinking, there's all this Russian stuff. Well, so I, I, it just kind of, excuse the pun, but it bugged me. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm so oh, sorry. spy humour, spy humour. It, it, yeah, so it bugged me. And, and then, of course, somebody said to me, one of the relatives said, his mother never talked about the site, but only said on one occasion, of course, the long-term threat by 1943, the Russians again. Soviet threat and we were interested mm. in that and the penny dropped so I went back to the bugged conversations 
And of course, I had in the back of my mind those German generals in particular. We captured pretty much most of Hitler's top commanders Mm -hmm. as field marshals, etc. They were utterly obsessed by the Russians. And they would say to each other, well, you know, why won't the British sue for peace? We are not the enemy. Uh, You know, they should be suing for peace. The Russians are the enemy. So what Kendrick realised, and this may be true also for Bletchley Park, so anybody listening from Bletchley Park, possibly, I'm sure, intel, uh, that kind of stuff from Bletchley Park almost certainly would have impacted on the Cold War, but no one's analysed it. But with Kendrick's site, what I realise is they are actually using, particularly the German generals, what they're talking about, Russian military capability, they're talking about the Russian atomic program, they've seen access to some of the top secret intelligence reports in Germany before they're captured, they are giving up intel on the Soviet threat. And for me, this is just a whole new dimension that actually prepares us for the Cold War. And then at the end of the Second World War, we're still picking up top commanders. They're being taken to these sites well into the end of 1945. Mm -hmm. And I was told, for example, and I may have said this before, that General Dornberger, in charge of the whole administration for the EV weapon program, was the most important interrogation ahead of the Cold War. So what we have, and this for me was incredibly exciting, Yes, it helps to win the intelligence war, the war on the ground against Nazi Germany. But there's another dimension to these intel sites that they actually prepared us for the Cold War in ways that have not previously be, uh, been understood. Oh, there's, a, there's another book for you then, isn't there? <laughs> uh, speaking of new books, um, now obviously we may have to edit some of this out to keep the publishers happy, but... At the time of recording, I understand you're working on a new book. Um, for listeners who are listening on Patreon, it will be out on pre-order. But if you're listening on general release, it will be out already. So um, what's what's next? So coming out in September 2023 is Women in Intelligence, The Hidden History Across Two World Wars. And I think your listeners are going to be very excited by mm. some of the stories that I've discovered, mm-hmm. some of the new stories and some of the analysis that I actually provide on those stories. So I'm very, very excited by this. Are you allowed to tell us a little teaser of some people that are in it? No, I'm really sorry. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> I love this. What is it with intelligence historians and yeah. classified stuff? Yeah, yeah. still top secret even it's- today. Well, we'll yes. have to wait until September the 12th, then, mm-hmm. which, uh, which is when it ships. But um, we have got it. We, we can pre-order it via the History Rage bookshop. So, um, guys, if you're up for this, then do please uh, drop that pre-order. And might I just say as well, and I know Kyle would agree with me here, that whoever does your cover art deserves oh a pay raise. Oh, my goodness, yes. Do you know, when they were designing the cover for Women in Intelligence... And just before it dropped into my email, saying, you know, how do you, what do you think about what we've done? I thought, they, surely they can't beat Spymaster. How can they beat yes. the walls? How is MI9? But they've yeah. smashed it. They've absolutely yes. smashed it. And what I love about that cover, it's so exciting. It's the women, they're on the move. They're women of action. 
Yes. And they're not sat at a desk with pen and paper. Now, I've got to be very careful because I'm going to start doing a rage if, and I get thrown <laughs> off the show. Um, not, okay, I'm not going to tip into a rage. Uh, but oh, for me, <laughs> it's just so exciting. Yes. And it's awesome. Yeah, I think they should have a medal, you're quite right, for jacket cover designs. Because that, that guy, he's way up there. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely legendary stuff. Just details within details. Once you get it, you can, oh, so that old gods, the brilliance. Yeah. Did you it... notice the assassin's pen? Oh, you, you can right. go back and have a look at the cover um, now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is why Kyle hasn't read the book, because he's been far too many time like, examining the covers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Helen, because that has decoded an awful lot of the murky world of spies for you. And, uh, we, we wish you well for the release of the new book. Yes. And, uh, for, for those of you that have enjoyed this out there, then, uh, Helen will be coming back to join us again, particularly to rage about a particular woman in intelligence. But that's all the teaser that I'm going to give you at the moment. If you'd like to know more about Helen's work, then you should start with our excellent range of books, which are all available through the History Rage Bookshop, and we will have, have links to those. Uh, you can see her cropping up on TV and play, pay close attention to the ongoing development for the National Centre for Military Intelligence. You can follow that de- development on Twitter at NCMIUK, and you can follow Helen at Dr. Helen Fry. But Helen, thank you very much for bringing... And another thing to uh, History Rage. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to my rage. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I am at Kyle G History. And if you're loving this as much as we are, then why not join the Angry Mob on Patreon? Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.